social work classes um, with uh, Roy Haynes and my colleague, I think, is Beth Martin. So I'm really sorry if you know you've heard the song and dance before. So, and if that's the case, you can certainly like ask more questions, or maybe you can help me put it in a different way that your uh, peers might uh, get better, I guess. Um, okay, so yeah, and this is going to be discussion. So if you guys have any questions or anything like that, uh, or if I'm not making sense, please just let me know. Um, and uh, yeah, so just let me know. So I always like to start off with just touching base about some terms. I'm sorry if you guys already know about this, but I really want to be clear about like what we're talking about and which people we're talking about. So, okay? so Indigenous, we all know what that word means for the most part. It means First Peoples of uh, Lands. Um, it's tended, it has been tending to be used more often here in Canada, um, as opposed to previously, sometimes you'd hear Aboriginal. Uh, so Indigenous kind of has like an international sort of context to it. Um, it's a more of a pan term that can encompass any Indigenous groups. It's obviously um, under that word there's a diversity of peoples that's included, right? Native American, that's more of an American term used. Um, so it means uh, Indigenous peoples living in what is currently known as the United States. Aboriginal, like I said, this word is more of it has a Canadian context to it, and it has a relationship with uh, the, the Canadian Constitution, right? So Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution, which basically says there's three groups, Indigenous groups in Canada, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, and they are rights holders in Canada. Um, so yeah, First Nations people. This is also a very diverse term, so as much as possible, we try to say exactly which community we're talking about. So Cree, Anishinaabe, Haida, uh, anything like this. Um, and so it's, yeah, again, very diverse term. And then First Nations folks um, have legislation to do with them called, and it's called the Indian Act, right? I'm sure you guys have heard of this. Um, and so because of the Indian Act, First Nations are also classified two different ways, non-status and status. So a status First Nation or Indian, um, I only use Indian in this uh, way because we're still using the Indian Act. Indian is a derogatory word, so we don't tend to use it in everyday speak, but I'll say it in this case because it's called the Indian Act and it's a pejorative piece of legislation. Um, so to be a status Indian, you are considered to be under the Indian Act. If you're a non-status Indian, it means you're not considered under the Indian Act, right? And so if, you, if you're a status or non-status, your life can be pretty different, right? So um, if you live on reserve, for example, your healthcare is gonna be taken care of differently, your education is gonna be taken care of differently, so on and so forth. Versus if you're off, stat off reserve and you're non-status, for example, um, so for example, me, my healthcare is paid through my province of residence. If I were a, person, a status person living on reserve, my healthcare would be paid paid for through the federal government, right? So very different hoops that people are gonna have to jump through. And we're gonna talk a lot about that later on. So Métis, um, this is a distinct group of people. Um, post what's considered post-contact people. Our homeland is typically speaking within the prairies, a little bit into the United States and a little bit northwards 
into uh, the Northwest Territories as well. And then Inuit circumpolar people. Uh, so uh, there's they live in uh, Nunavut, uh, Nanatsiavut, which is Labrador, Minovec, uh, Quebec, Northern Quebec, and Inugalit, which is the ter Northwest Territories. Any questions so far? today is reconciliation education. So essentially the link between residential schools and contemporary inequities, as well as the extremely long history of Canada knowing about these inequities and harms and just choosing not to act. Can everyone see okay? Should we turn off the front lights? Are we okay? It's up to you guys. Ontario stuff. Anyways, so yes, he's the was the deputy superintendent of what was then known as Indian Affairs. And if you guys actually look at the history of what is now known as Indigenous Services Canada, what was previously known as uh, Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada, and you know just in the last ten years, I think it's gone through three or four different name changes. You'll see something similar. It's gone through like honestly probably about a dozen different name changes, and that really indicates they're trying to. Um, repackage what is, what is essentially the same, you know, department, right? Anyway, so uh, Duncan Campbell Scott, he basically was the architect of the residential school system here in Canada. He was the man in charge of Indian Affairs and basically passed these policies that saw a lot of Indigenous uh, children taken and put into, re into residential schools. And you've got this quote, of course, it's pretty, it's, you know, very common, this quote. Um, our objective is not to uh, continue to resign a single Indian in Canada has not been absorbed in the cosmopolitan. So basically they were trying to do this in white children. And this guy is Dr. Peterson Henderson, Peter Henderson Bryce. And he was actually a medical doctor. He worked um, in terms of like public health policy, right? So he wrote a lot of like like the Ontario Public Health Policy, and then he was hired by Indian, Indian Affairs to do research on what the, what the conditions were of residential schools, right? And he himself has a bit of a checkered past. 
um, as I'm sure all white men did at that time. Um, that being said, he actually came up with this report that pointed to the absolutely atrocious conditions in residential schools. So um, yeah, the quote here speaks for itself. Uh, 25% of pupils were, had passed away in school. Um, uh, yeah, between 25 and 69% uh, were dead. Um, and that was because of the conditions of residential schools. So the really poor infrastructure, um, overcrowding issues, um, and the complete inability slash like no uh, ambition to really do anything about a lot of common diseases that were taking place. So we had, for example, TB. And so he actually came up in his report, uh, came up with a solution, and it was gonna cost between $10,000 and $15,000 to implement this solution. And unfortunately, Duncan Campbell Scott um, basically said, no, these reforms are too expensive, and they were not implemented, and the report was shelved. Um, and unfortunately, in 1920, uh, Duncan Campbell Scott made attendance at residential schools for all children mandatory. Um, and, uh, the odds, unfortunately, were uh, quite dire. So similar odds of, in between uh, children dying in residential schools to uh, soldiers dying in, in World War II. I'm sorry, it's so hard to read. Um, I'll send out a PDF version of this to you guys after class. Um, basically, it charts from 1895 to present day, essentially. The amount of times the government's been told that there's an issue, our kids aren't getting the services they need, they need our kids are dying, so on and so forth. And also, more importantly, a lot of these reports that are outlined in here, so Bryce's report, the Culver book, Caldwell report that was uh, issued in 1967, um, and RCAP, the Royal Commission of Aboriginal Peoples, all talked about these issues and all said that this isn't done. And also there was um, other reports issued that basically said these are the solutions to what we need to do to fix these, to fix these problems. But as you can see, the government chose not to, chose to shelve these reports and not to So what we've got here between this um, situation with the Indian Act, right? So what we see is legislated di uh, uh, discrimination with the Indian Act. Combine that with the um, significantly underfunding of uh, education, healthcare, of other social services, um, and in combination of multi-generation uh, multi impacts we've got key drivers to over-representation of First Nations kids in care, right? And so this is a, a chart that really exemplifies that. So First Nations kids are eight times more likely to be apprehended uh, for reasons to do with neglect in other children. And often what we find is that 
These reasons are things like lack of access to healthcare, lack of ac access to education, uh, housing, and clean drinking water, things like this, things that are really outside of the control of a family, right? I noticed too that you have neglect there. Neglect is so um, something that you can't really easily define. It's a lot of work. Mm. Like when, when social workers or child protection workers, for instance, going to a home, they don't define what neglect is. It's very difficult. And oftentimes that's been misinterpreted in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. And what I find most interesting about this graph here is that it does spell out things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional maltreatment and exposure to IBD, IPD, intimate partner violence, as some of the reasons for removal of children. But then you've got this absolutely massive figure for reasons of, to do with neglect, right? So what, what's constituted that, th th that those removals in those cases, right? And so uh, my colleagues and I, we actually, um, We calculated uh, exactly how many nights spent away, um, the number of nights for station children in Canada spent away from their families between 1989 and 2017. And that's 78 million nights and about 213,000 years of childhood. So that's pretty significant, not only for individual children, uh, but also for their families and for their communities, right? Uh, when we talk about First Nations and broadly Indigenous approaches to community and family, it's not necessarily, it's a whole, it's a holistic circle, right? So removing a child from that is pretty significant. Is everyone aware of the Truth Reconciliation Commission? It's been out for a while. Um, <coughs> if you haven't read the calls to action, I would really encourage you guys to do that. Um, they uh, are very well-rounded and you'll find a lot of very interesting things in there. And so one of the main things, the first thing I should say, that the call to action called uh, call for was um, basically addressing the legacy of residential school system, right? So instead of, so when the residential school system closed, does anybody know when the last residential school closed? 96. 96, yeah. Instead of funding, on reserve schools properly, the government didn't, right? So instead of funding, um, you know, you had this huge apparatus that basically removed children from their home and placed them into a school. And when they stopped this system, there was this expectation that families would just pick up, the communities would just pick up the pieces, right? But you don't really, you don't see that, right? So what ends up happening is there's a huge, uh, removal of children is, is happening still, right? And so this is the, the biggest reason why the TRC has called for um, addressing uh, child welfare, and it's absolutely uh, what's considered to be the Millennium Scoop now, addressing that and actually looking into the causes and uh, the solutions for that, right? Uh, as well as it calls for um, the full implementation of Jurors Principle, which I'll get to as well. Does that make sense? And so uh, the TRC has called for the for these solutions, right? And says we need to fix this problem. There's a void that's, that's in the communities, and we need to have these solutions uh, 
place, right? And in fact, there are solutions, right? So uh, I went through the whole history, over 100 years of solutions on the books, essentially. And in the last 20 years now, I guess, uh, there have been two more. So the first one is called the uh, Joint National uh, Policy Review, and it was completed in 2000. And it basically looked at on-reserve uh, child and family services. And it found that there was a huge gap in funding between on-reserve child and family services versus a child and family service you might find in Ottawa, for example, right? And this goes back to what I was talking about between um, the, Indian Act, the Indian Act, essentially, right? So there's different fun funding formulas uh, for an off-reserve community like Ottawa and then an on-reserve community uh, like Kittigan and ZB, right? And uh, yeah, so the National Joint Policy uh, Review uh, found that there was a 22% difference. Now it's in 2000. So the government actually like commissioned this report. And then again, instead of saying, yeah, there's a problem, we should do something, we shelved it again. So then the Caring Society uh, came up with these two reports called the One Day Reports. And they were, we worked with, uh, this was before my time, I think his reports were uh, finished when I was still in high school. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, so these reports were completed with uh, professors at the University of Manitoba and I believe Ottawa as well. And the same thing, it looked, looked at on-reserve uh, child welfare services, and it pegged the shortfall in funding at $109 million per year. And again, the, the government chose not to implement the solutions found in these, in these reports. So in part, because of the government's failure to implement the solutions, um, as well as the government's failure to implement Jordan's principle fully, uh, the Karen Society, along with the Assembly of, of uh, First Nations, filed a Canadian Human Rights Tribunal complaint, uh, alleging, yeah, Canada's inequitable child welfare funding for First Nations and approach to Jordan's principle was discriminatory. Does everybody know who the Assembly of First Nations is? Okay, so they're basically the representative body of all First Nations across Canada, more or less. Uh, so. Their national chief right now is Perry Delgar, and uh, so part of their uh, meetings, for example, you'll find chiefs from every single First Nation across Canada. And so in 2016, so just over three years ago, um, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal found the government is racially discriminating against 165,000 First Nations kids and families by providing flawed and inequitable child welfare services and failing to fully implement Jordan's principle. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about Jordan's principle now. Um, so uh, basically Jordan's principle is, try is uh, a principle to make sure that all First Nations kids get the services uh, when they need them, right? Uh, and if a child first, Principles, named in honor of Jordan River Anderson, who was a First Nations boy from uh, Norway House Cree Nation, which is in Manitoba. And he was born with some super complex medical needs. Um, and so when he was born, he was born in a hospital in Winnipeg. And he basically spent uh, five years unnecessarily in hospital. After, I think, the age of two, his doctor said that he could go home. He just would need, a, he would just need some uh, increased health, like 
sports, right? Um, and because he's a First Nations kid, he kind of falls between this jurisdictional uh, <coughs> right? So the federal government said, nope, we're not paying for it. The, the province of Manitoba needs to pay for it. And the province said, nope, we're not paying for it. And so basically what happened was, Jordan was basically caught between these two governments fighting over who was gonna pay for his in-home care. And unfortunately, he uh, passed away at the age of five, um, having never spent a day uh, at home. And so because of that story, uh, we worked with his family uh, to come up with Jordan's principle. And again, that's basically a principle to make sure that First Nations kids, they're not gonna fall in, you know, in between this jurisdictional uh, fight, right? They're gonna get the services they need, and these services take into consideration their, um, the history of colonization in this country, and uh, if they need culturally relevant services as well. So yeah, key elements of Jordan's principle. Um, so in the past, part of the reason why the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal complaint was put in was because uh, Canada's previous definitions were too narrow and thus discriminatory, right? So at first they were saying um, it's only First Nations kids uh, with complex medical needs. Well, there's a lot of kids who have uh, health concerns or um, education concerns and things like that, that you know they're not getting the services that they would get if they were living off reserve or if they were a non-First Nations kid, right? Um, and that actually Canada's non-compliance was linked with the death of two girls at, on a reserve in Northern Ontario. And the key, most key aspect is it applies to all First Nations kids living on and off reserve. It applies to all public services and substantive equality applies, right? Uh, so it's not necessarily just, okay, so in Ottawa, this kid will receive um, an educational assistant. Therefore, if, the, if uh, a First Nations kid in Ontario also needs to receive an educational assistant. It's also things like, um, this child, uh, the best way that we know uh, they're not going to uh, uh, require additional um, mental health supports is by playing hockey. We know this. It's been like their psychiatrists, their therapists have said that, therefore we're gonna pay for their hockey. Things like that, right? So it, it takes into consideration the whole package, right? Um, and then the government, or the tribunal also put in time, time frames, okay? So a family will put in a Jordan's principal request and the government can't sit on it for six months. They have to make a decision within a certain amount of time. Um, and the government can't engage in what's called case conferencing or administrative procedures. So they can't say to the family, oh, we need this form, we need that form, whatever, whatever, whatever. It needs to be accessible. And the idea of it is to make sure, especially if it's an urgent case, um, that the services get funded right away. And most importantly, it's a legal order, right? So it's not a program, it's not gonna go away. And yeah, so ongoing challenges, we're continually having to fight with the government over who's considered a First Nations child. And in fact, one of the latest non-compliance orders issued in uh, February of this, this past, this year, um, has to do with that. Um, and one of the key aspects of Jordan's principle is the best interest of the child, right? And it's, it's still not clear how or if the government is looking at Jordan's principle through that lens. Um, and there's also a lack of clarity on the criteria surrounding what's like group requests, right? So a lot of communities will make a request for um, a, a mental health worker for the entire community, for example, so that's considered a group request. 
So those, those requests are dealt with very inconsi in inconsistent manner. Um, and same with urgent requests, right? So urgent requests are, are uh, defined as any sort of uh, request whereby if it's not funded fully, um, irreparable harm could come to the child, right? Um, and that's what happened with those two girls up in Northern Ontario. Um, they put in an urgent request and the government decided not, like, they didn't fund it quick enough and um, the girls did pass away. And like I said, the time frame, it still continues to be an issue um, with the government. And as I said, there's individual group and retroactive cases. So because the government was found to be discriminatory in how it was implementing George's principle, uh, the tribunal ordered them to um, fund uh, George's principle requests back in 2007. And you can see this is sort of an infographic that shows the path that a family will have to go through to get George's principle. So it's not a one-step process. It's still a little bit bureaucratic. And we're still working with the government to make sure that's as accessible as possible. So since the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal issued its order in 2016, finding the government to be discriminatory, there has actually been seven non-compliance orders against the government. So what that means is that the tribunal um, has found that the government still is not following the rules of the original order. Um, and uh, uh, the most recent one, like I said, was just this past February. Um, so it's still very much is an ongoing uh, case. And I would really encourage you guys to take a look at our website and find all the orders there and the back and forth and things like this that's been happening with the uh, government of Canada because it is quite a significant thing and it's going to have a really, it has a real impact on First Nations kids and families. <clears throat> like I said, we all need or legal orders, seven on compliance plus the original order, eight legal orders against the government. I'm going to talk a little bit about, actually before I go on, does anybody have any questions about the tribunal? So it has, it, um, you know the cuts to that forbade to the autistic services services for children with autism and their yeah, families? Yeah, like by the provincial government, right? Right, is that, can it be applied to provincial? Like Jordan's principle? Yeah. Yeah, so as long as the kids are first, like, like I said, it's for First Nations kids. Um, in fact, uh, 